Continuing its special worldwide coverage of the invasion on D-Day, CBS World News now presents Quincy Howe with up-to-the-minute development. Mr. Howe. Instead of repeating more recent scattered bulletins, it seems a good idea at this point to insert in today's broadcast a summary of the main events of the past 18 hours. Shortly before midnight, the German radio announced, This is D-Day, and spoke of Allied parachutists landing in France. Three hours later came the first official announcement from Supreme Allied Headquarters in Britain. It stated that the invasion had begun with heavy sea and air bombardment. Meanwhile, the underground resistance movement had been addressed by various exiled leaders speaking over the shortwave radio from Britain. And General Eisenhower's headquarters told the inhabitants of the French coast that the air attacks on that region were entering a new phase. From then on, events moved rapidly and the real news began to come in. Prime Minister Churchill told the House of Commons that the crossing by sea had proved less difficult than had been expected. The fire of the German shore batteries was quickly quelled. Then came massed airborne landings, the largest in history. Everything was proceeding according to a plan, Churchill declared, and added, and what a plan. He thought we might have achieved tactical, that means sort of local, surprise. Britain's General Montgomery commanded the first invasion troops, who included British, Canadian, and American. And the day before D-Day, he predicted that the Germans would take their, or would make, rather, their strongest fight right on the beachheads themselves. But things went so well at the beachheads that it now seems likely that the Germans are saving their big punch to later. In fact, a bulletin came in a few minutes ago from Supreme Allied Headquarters saying that the first German counterattack in France is likely to materialize within the next 48 hours. That's what informed headquarters there say. But the first report said little about the location of, the, of these landings At, in a, until in a second appearance before the House of Commons, Mr. Churchill announced that the city of Caen, that's spelled C-A-E-N, at the eastern end of the peninsula of Normandy, was being attacked by glider and parachute troops. Later, our ground forces penetrated nine and a half miles inland in this area to fight in the streets of Caen itself. Churchill disclosed that the Allies had put 11,000 planes into the air and 4,000 naval vessels onto the sea. British warships in this armada poured shells into the area near the port of Le Havre at a rate of 2,000 tons in 10 minutes. Royal Air Force planes carried the brunt of the night fighting. Then the Americans took over at daylight, and between them, that is, between the Americans and the British, they provided steady cover for the ships and landing parties. The Germans put only 50 planes into the air, and this after Marshal Goering, the head of the German Air Force, had said the invasion must be stopped even if it means the death of the Luftwaffe. By this time, it had become clear that the main weight of our first attack was being directed against the peninsula of Normandy, which juts out northward from the northern coast of France into the English Channel. Further to the west lies the larger peninsula of Brittany, which marks the entrance of the English Channel. The purpose of this first attack seems to be to pinch off the whole Norman peninsula. At the tip of this peninsula lies the big port of Cherbourg. We may also be aiming to take Le Havre, which lies a few miles northeast of Caen on another small peninsula that juts out beyond the mouth of the River Seine. The Seine empties into the sea between Caen and Le Havre and flows through Paris a couple of hundred miles inland. Prime Minister Churchill not only kept right on scooping the world with his bulletins of Allied progress, he acted as his own commentator. He said the Allies had accomplished their first successes with extremely light losses. He singled out the airborne troops, many of them Americans, for especially high praise. He then predicted much heavier blows by both sides. 
He warned that the Germans will rush troops to the regions under attack, but he also let it be known that the Allied armies have new weapons, new tactics, everything in short that equipment, science, and forethought can do to make this great offensive a success. Mr. Churchill lived up to his character, his reputation, and his position as the king's first minister. He therefore left it to the king, King George VI, as the head of the British state, to strike a more solemn religious note in a measured broadcast delivered to the world three hours ago. The king spoke with difficulty and deep feeling. He called for earnest and continuous and widespread prayer throughout the present crisis of the liberation of Europe. We are not unmindful of our shortcomings of the past and present, said King George. We shall not ask that God may do our will, but that we may be enabled to do the will of God. And we dare to believe that God has used our nation and empire as an instrument for fulfilling his high purpose. President Roosevelt, who's the head of our state, as King George is the head of the British state, also urged his people to have recourse to prayer. In fact, as soon as the president finished his broadcast on the fall of Rome last night, he composed a prayer of his own, which he will deliver over all the major networks this evening at 10 p.m. Eastern wartime, four hours from now, and he, which he asked us all to join him in offering up. He prayed to God to lead our soldiers straight and true. He also prayed for world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men. The Russians, of course, don't go in for prayer quite so much as the British and Americans do, but none of their own victories cause more joy than today's news. This is what the Russians have been waiting for during almost three years of the most devastating war any country has ever suffered. They now feel that the Anglo-American armies really are in there, fighting the same enemy. They see hopes of early victory. They expect their own armies to start moving westward against the Germans any time now. But the military aspect of our attack from the west, important as they are, are not the only reason for the exaltation of the Russian people. For the past quarter century and more, the Russians have felt themselves cut off from the rest of the world. Their leaders have told them that the rest of the world wanted to wipe out their regime and undo the achievements of their revolution. The Russians had plenty of reason to distrust the outside world in the early years of their revolution. But as they built up their country, they began to become more curious about the outside world. They began to encourage visitors, though they never encouraged their own people to emigrate, and their regime ex exercised a dictatorial control over their daily lives. Then came the war. The Hitler-Stalin pact isolated Russia from the West. The German attack then threatened to destroy them utterly. But their own power and the increased help they got from Britain and the United States pulled them through. Now they see the Western allies putting on an offensive that matches some of their own efforts against the common enemy. They also hear leaders in Britain and America, men who used to fear and hate Russian communism, praising their country and calling for cooperation between the Soviet Union and the rest of the world. Today, on the beaches of northern France, the Russians therefore see a new period in their history beginning, a period in which they will play a larger part with other nations. The fact of Russia never meant more to us in the United States than it does today, because only today have the Russians received the final proof they have been looking for all these years that we are with them in the war and in the peace. And a bulletin just handed me from Reuters, the British news agency says, scores of United States heavily, heavy bombers, heavily escorted by fighters, took off from an American base in Russia and roared over the Soviet-German front to shower many tons of high-explosive and incendiary bombs on airdrome installations at Galatz in the first American raid of the war from the new shuttle bases in Russian territory. We're still awaiting a live communique number two, and we'll switch to London for it 
as soon as word comes in that it's ready, so there may be a sudden interruption in this program at any point. Well, for the Russians, the final results of today's landings can mean only better tidings. For the French, the future is not so clear and not so certain. While Frenchmen in Algiers embraced one another on the street and wept for joy, feeble old Marshal Pétain tottered up to a German microphone in Paris and urged his people to refrain from action, which would call, upon, call down upon you tragic reprisals. France has become a battlefield, he continued. The circumstances of battle may compel the German army to take special measures in the area. And here's the bulletin, Supreme Allied Expeditionary Force, Wednesday, June 7, Allied forces succeeded in their initial landings and fighting continues, said Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force today. This report is still coming in. There'll be more in a few minutes. Marshal Pétain, getting back to his speech again, told all workers in France to remain at their posts. Do not listen to outside voices, he warned, calling on you not to listen to our decrees. But shortly after the voice of Pétain had spoken these words, a British broadcasting station put on General de Gaulle, who's just arrived in London. General de Gaulle urged the French people to fight with all the means at their disposal. The supreme battle has begun, he said. This is the decisive blow which we have so much hoped for. This is the battle of France and France's battle. He called on all the sons of France to fight with all the means at their disposal. He also told the people of France to follow exactly the orders given by his government. It's hard to exaggerate the tragedy of General de Gaulle's present position, indeed the present position of France. He and his followers must not only fight the Germans, they must fight the apathy and suspicion of some of their own people. And they must fight the doubts and hesitations of some of our leaders, who have withheld full diplomatic uh, recognition right up to the very end. Perhaps our authorities have acted wisely in withholding this full diplomatic recognition that de Gaulle has been demanding for more than a year. But if the strongest leader in the French resistance movement does not deserve more than partial recognition, then that resistance movement is weak indeed. And if the French committee does deserve better of us, if de Gaulle is able to rally the French people, those people will always reproach us because we did not do more to help them in their hour of need. And then again getting back to this communique in its second communique on the invasion, Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Forces said that the Allied assault forces met little opposition in the channel or in the air. And here's communique number three, also from SHAEF. Light, heavy, and medium allied bombers continued their air bombardment in very great strength throughout the day with attacks on gun emplacements, defensive works, and communication. And here is communique four just in. Continuous fighter cover was maintained over the beaches and for some distance inland and over naval operations in the channel. That also was included in the communique. These landings in Western Europe overshadow, of course, the fighting north of Rome. But today's dispatches from the Italian capital report good progress on that front, too. American troops have moved ahead five miles beyond the Tiber River. Troops from French Morocco have captured Tivoli Junction 16 miles east of Rome. And British troops at the western end of the front, down by the mouth of the Tiber, have taken 2,000 more German prisoners. Yesterday, our troops beyond Rome met with no enemy opposition at all. The Germans were retreating too fast. Today, they defeated German rear guards in fierce tank fighting, and from then on, the opposition again weakened. The Germans quit Rome so fast, they left 11 of the 14 main bridges across the Tiber River intact. Our Mediterranean air forces flew 2,400 sorties yesterday, most of them against rail yards and bridges in northern Italy, 
and from Naples comes the news that Marshal Badoglio has dissolved his present all-party government and that Crown Prince Umberto, who's taken on his father's job as king, has asked Badoglio to form a new government. The king is dead, long live the king, or to quote another French proverb, the more it changes, the more it's the same thing. And now for some more bulletins and dispatches that have come in during the past hour or two. This afternoon, President Roosevelt told his White House news conference that the invasion of Europe is up to schedule. Up to noon, Eastern wartime today, Mr. Roosevelt told his news conference that American naval losses in the invasion consisted of two destroyers and one LST landing craft. Total air losses were 1%, a figure the president described as relatively light. There were more than 150 newsmen jammed into the big Oval Office for the first presidential conference since the invasion. Mr. Roosevelt was in shirt sleeves and smiling. He said he thought it was going to be a very happy conference. But he did say the country, uh, he said the country had full reason to be thrilled, but he hoped this would not lead to overconfidence, which would destroy the war effort. And Prime Minister Churchill has received today this congratulatory message from Premier Stalin of Russia on the liberation of Rome. I congratulate you on the great victory of the allied Anglo-American forces in the taking of Rome. This news has been greeted in the Soviet Union with great satisfaction. And I'm repeating again the late uh, communique that's just come in from Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces. Allied forces succeeded in their initial landings and fighting continues. In its second communique of the invasion, SHAEF said that the Allied assault forces met little opposition in the channel or on the air. And Radio Berlin reported big air battles over Romania, while the Daily Soviet communique said the Red Army had repulsed continuing Nazi attacks north and northeast of Yassi in Romania, and that Russian bombers had carried out a mass raid on Yassi itself. You have just heard CBS analyst Quincy Hell with up-to-the-minute developments of the Allied invasion on D-Day, brought to you by CBS World News. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Edwin C. Hill with the human side of the news. Presented by Johnson & Johnson, maker of Band-Aid, a ready-made adhesive bandage that helps keep little injuries little. Friends, this Tuesday, because of the special interest in war news, Band-Aid is giving up its commercial time so that Mr. Hill can give you the fullest possible report of the developments overseas. And you can be sure that if any news flashes come into the CBS newsroom during this broadcast, they will be passed on to you immediately. And now Band-Aid presents the famous American journalist, Edwin C. Hill. Good evening, everyone. The most colossal military enterprise in all history is well underway, with the German defenses along the French coast for a distance of more than 100 miles found to be much weaker than our military leaders had feared, and with our losses much smaller than had been feared. It is possible, even probable, that in the next uh, few minutes, perhaps most any time, a most important communique will be received here from General Eisenhower himself. If that is true, it will instantly be put before you. Although more than 4,000 ships moved steadily to the coast of Normandy under the protection of 11,000 bombing and fighting planes, the cost in killed and wounded were described by none other than General Eisenhower as very, very small. It cannot be expected that such good tidings can be long continued. Our troops and the troops of our British allies drawn from almost every part of the great British Commonwealth of Nations must soon engage if they have not already done so in the heaviest fighting. The German radio asserts that von Rundstedt, their supreme commander, and a soldier of undoubted skill, is bringing up every reinforcement to the coast where, said the Germans, a battle for life or death is even now in progress. 
just why initial resistance by the Germans was so unexpectedly weak along that stretch of coast from Cherbourg to Le Havre, around the estuary of the Seine River, and the northeast shore of the peninsula of Normandy, seemed to be something of a surprise and a puzzle to our commanders. The Germans were known to have had probably 1,750 fighters and at least 500 bombers to meet the attack, to smash at our invasion fleet, and at the men coming ashore on every beach. But it is not forgotten that Air Marshal Goring told his air forces in an order of the day that the invasion must be beaten off, even if the Luftwaffe perished. Notwithstanding Goren's lethal orders, the German Air Force failed to put up anything in the nature of effective opposition. <coughs> Perhaps the reason is apparent in the overwhelming <coughs> strength of the invasion forces and in the brilliancy of planning by our generals and admirals. More than 640 naval guns, ranging from 4 to 16 inch, hurled many tons of shells accurately into the coastal fortifications on which the Germans had spent four years preparing against this day. Prime Minister Church was able to tell Parliament that the shore batteries had been largely quelled, the underwater obstructions had proven less dangerous than feared, and the whole operation was proceeding according to plan. It was General Sir Bernard L. Montgomery who led the seaborne troops, the American and the British, magnificently, as always he has led them, from the deserts of Africa to the fair land of France. Airborne troops, parachutes, and glider men who went in after a personal farewell from General Eisenhower played a brilliant part in the invasion picture. The Germans say they landed at Cannes and made a deep penetration at many points. It is most interesting to recall that it was from Cannes and from the Dives sur mer region of coast near Deauville that William of Normandy launched his invasion of Saxon England in the year 1066. And now history, reversing, not repeating herself, sends the sons of Saxon and Norman English and of fighting Irish and other good breeds in whose veins the blood of courage and love of liberty has never ceased to flow sends them back to that very land, almost to that very port from which they came those long years ago. It is, of course, much too soon to gather from the whole invasion picture more than a few scattered glimpses. But the scene, the panorama of the invasion, stretching along the sea coast for more than 100 miles, must have been an appallingly magnificent spectacle could any human eye have envisioned its sweep and surge or any human ear caught the repercussions of the great and little guns. 4,000 shiploads of soldiers. Nobody knows yet how many, although 4,000 ships could easily have carried half a million men to the coast of Normandy. 4,000 men, ships from 4,000 men scrambling into the surf, wading ashore, surging up onto the beaches, ready for action, going instantly into battle. Warships of the British and United States Navy standing out at sea, hurling thousands of tons of shells into the coastal defenses upon which the Germans had put four years of effort countless billions in their money, and which they thought to be impregnable. The Germans themselves said that the whole Bay of the Seine was a fire. If the German land troops, who must have been in great force, retreated slowly, it is difficult to believe that they could have escaped terrific losses. The English Channel skies were black with Allied warcraft, heavy and medium bombers, fighters, fighter bombers, rocket bombers, tow planes, gliders, supply and hospital craft, and possibly aerial tank carriers. Not too late was too little this time. No wonder that Mr. Churchill exclaimed to a cheering House of Commons, what a plan, what a plan. No wonder that General Montgomery, commander of all land forces, said to his troops, we have absolute and complete confidence in the outcome. No wonder that General Eisenhower, the man with the greatest responsibility that has been borne by any military figure since Washington, declared with great assurance in his final order of the day, we will accept nothing less than complete victory. A negotiated peace 
is not for such men as Montgomery and Eisenhower. They know the people they're up against. These men and our president, too, have said in so many words that Germany has been an incessant war maker for a thousand years and must be reduced to military impotence and held there. They know that the Nazis and Japanese are fighting to enslave the world. They know that we are fighting to free the slaves of the Nazis and the Japanese and to preserve our liberty. Free men can always win over military might when they're not disarmed or divided. If that were not true, the Allied forces could not have driven the Nazi hordes thousands of miles across the African desert, across the Mediterranean, and over the mountains of southern Italy. If that were not true, the retreating of German divisions would not still be running north of Rome. But as the Gustav line was not broken quickly or easily, so we must be prepared for reverses and sacrifices on the much stronger western line before the final breakthrough. Now that the battle has begun, there's little enough that we here at home can do for our beloved ones in the thick of it all. All our war work, however essential, seems so small compared with what they are giving. Our prayers go with them this day and every day until the victorious end. God bless them and guide them and keep them. God make us worthy of them. Never in all history has so much been at stake as in the battles which are now occurring and the battles that will occur. Four years from the day the Germans broke the Maginot Line at Sedan, less than 48 hours after the redemption of Rome, each hour of D-Day came, the moment so long awaited by the world's democracy. As a pure and simple military undertaking, the invasion was stupendous in its magnitude. As a controlling factor in the destinies of the world for generations to come, it was a stroke for which the future may never find a parallel. For upon its outcome depends the deliverance of the world from Nazi tyranny. And already, only a few hours after the opening gun was fired, there are, as I've said, indications of success in the initial phases, at least, of the greatest armed operation in all history. And as I told you at the beginning, at any moment may come a greater bulletin from General Eisenhower with a promise, I think, of even more success. And here is bulletin number two at this very moment from Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, from Eisenhower himself. Allied forces have succeeded in their initial landings in France and the fighting continues. And then the bulletin goes on to say that naval casualties are regarded as very light. Allied planes continue the air bombardment in very great strength throughout the day. It is with a prayer for God's support upon his lips, an unshakable conviction of ultimate triumph in his heart, that General Dwight D. Eisenhower gave the signal for attack in the early hours of this morning. The invasion of Europe began swiftly, almost silently. Advanced parties of assault troops marched into the landing stages of the English ports, clammed aboard the blunt-nosed assault craft, and then transhipped to the larger craft, swing at anchor farther out in the harbor. They said goodbye to English soil for a long time. Gangs of service troops loaded the rations that will sustain the task force while seaborne between England and the European continent. It was said there were enough rations put aboard to last eight days plus one day of emergency combat rations. The prologue to the invasion was carried on by highly trained Army and Navy personnel and almost under the noses of the English civilian populace without attracting the slightest bit of attention. Indeed, the public had been thoroughly conditioned by many practiced embarkations and landings. Those who saw the small advance parties where the light combat packs marched to the takeoff point were not able to say that this was it. But the troops knew. They knew that the hour had come this time for sure. This was it. Assault troops of combat divisions moved into the assembly areas 
Landing crafts of all types began assembling close to shore. Day before yesterday, the assembly areas were changed into marshalling areas, and this meant that the troops, having been briefed at the exact mission, were reshuffled into craft loads. Yes, the invasion is on, and although the news is reassuring from the invasion coast, we feel as if iron hands were gripping our hearts. Here in New York is in all America, as wherever lovers of human freedom await news with such intensity as very probably humankind never before experienced, this day has been a day of prayer, prayer for victory, and prayer that the toll of young life may be, by God's mercy, not too great. In homes, churches, synagogues, and schools, millions gathered humbly to entreat divine aid. The solemn mood is well expressed for the leading editorial of the New York Sun. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Thus spake the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God, as he prepared to enter upon the last mile that led to Calvary and the cross. And thus today must all of us speak, those who at home suffer vicariously, and those who in the full glory of superb manhood advance toward the grand climax of all their training and preparation. Here it is. This is what we're all here for. Life and strength, youth and wisdom, courage and sacrifice, health and fortune, all we have our hope for our children's children to have is staked upon the adventure of this day. Let us humbly and prayerfully hope that the event may justify our highest expectations. Insofar as the human element is concerned, we need have no doubt of the outcome. They are bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, blood of our blood, to carry on this enterprise, and they will not fail. Insofar as technical preparation is involved, we have every right to repose the utmost confidence in our military and naval experts, who for months have been working out the plan. As for the justice of our cause, we have no occasion to fear any judgment, human or divine. We have no right to ask, no right to expect an immediate and overwhelming conquest over our resourceful and well-fortified foe. We nevertheless do believe that the best cause will win because the best men are fighting for it. That cause is our cause. Those men are our men. The distinguished prelate resides over the Archdiocese of New York, penned the most eloquent and moving supplication to the creator of all things, as did the right Reverend Henry St. George Tucker, presiding bishop of the Protestant Episcopal Church and president of the Federal Council of Churches of Christ in America. None of the prayers winging heavenward in these hours of tremendous need for God's aid said more in little than that breathed by Dr. Tucker. Almighty and most merciful God, he prayed, Father of all mankind, lover of every life, here we beseech thee the cry of thy children in this dark hour of conflict and danger. Thou hast been the refuge and strength in all generations of those who put their trust in thee. May it please thee this day to draw to thyself the hearts of those who struggle and endure to the uttermost. Have mercy on them and suffer not their faith in thee to fail. Guide and protect them by thy light and strength that they may be kept from evil. May thy comfort be sufficient for all who suffer pain or await in the agony of uncertainty. O righteous and omnipotent God, who in their tragedies and conflicts judgest the hearts of men and the purposes of nations, enter into this struggle with thy transforming power that out of its anguish there may come a victory of righteousness. May there arise a new order which shall endure because in it thy will shall be done in earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us and cleanse us as well as those who strive against us that we may be fit instruments of thy purpose. Unto thy most gracious keeping we commend our loved ones and ourselves ascribing unto thee praise and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Band-Aid, Johnson & Johnson's adhesive bandage was happy to relinquish its commercial time on today's program so that Mr. Hill could give you a fuller report of the vital war news. This is Dan Seymour speaking for Band-Aid, and this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. At this time, Columbia brings you Jerry Sullivan. We will interrupt the program to bring you alien late news developments. Jerry Sullivan's Dream House. I have built a dream house. Cozy. Everybody and welcome to Dream House. Paul Barron and the boys in the band join me as we start the beam coming and the rafters ringing with my honey's loving arms.
This is TBS World News Headquarters, and here's a late bulletin just received. Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force announced tonight that more than 1,000 troop-carrying aircraft, including gliders, took part in the airborne phase of the invasion of Europe. It was also announced at headquarters that the American Navy, including the cruisers Augusta and Tuscaloosa, and the battleship Nevada, participated in the bombardment supporting the Allied landings. The coast-to-coast facilities of the Columbia Network will remain open until further notice. So keep tuned to your Columbia station for further invasion coverage. We return you now to our scheduled program.
Dead giveaway in this next song. It's almost a complete chorus in its own right. Here it is. I've got those all alone and lonely, lonesome for my one and only blues. Honest.
another day. We'll be back with us again tomorrow, won't you? Paul Barron and the boys in the band will be here with more music, and I'll be around with more songs. See you then. I have built a dream house, cozy little dream house. Be with us on Wednesday and every day, Monday through Friday, when Columbia will again present Jerry Sullivan's Dream House. to this station for the latest report from our foreign correspondents on the world today to be heard just 30 seconds from now. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. It is now 6.45 Eastern War Time by the accurate General Electric clock. Time for the world today, presented by General Electric and General Electric radio dealers. Today, General Electric is omitting its regular commercial announcement in order to bring you more news of the invasion. This is Douglas Edwards reporting that the second Allied invasion communique has been issued, and it reports that Allied forces have succeeded in their initial landings in France, and fighting continues. Now for further details of this war bulletin and news of other developments in the invasion operations, General Electric takes you to London, Edward R. Murrow reporting. This is London. The atmosphere at headquarters continues to be optimistic. Particular pleasure is expressed at the success of the airborne action. Tonight's communique gives no information regarding the land fighting, but there is no indication that the Germans have put in a counterattack. Tonight we were told the names of some of the American ships participating in the bombardment. The Augusta is there, so is the Tuscaloosa. Likewise, the Nevada. The Japanese tried to sink her at Pearl Harbor. The three British ships named were the Old War Spike and the cruisers Mauritius and Belfast. All day, Allied heavy bombers have been operating in support of the ground troops. They have encountered no fighter opposition. As a matter of fact, the refusal of the Germans to commit their force is one of the principal subjects of conversation here tonight. As the official record goes, the action so far seems to have been almost too easy. The reputation of the German armies is still considerable, and there is no disposition to discount their power to hit back. There is no official admission that our bridgehead is free from concentrated artillery fire. But the general impression is that we are now in a position to start pouring the material ashore, the tanks and the self-propelled artillery. Incidentally, they're all waterproofed for traveling in water up to six feet. Eyewitness accounts indicate that all movement has ceased in the area of the attack. The roads and rails carry no traffic. It means that the bombers can now start working further inland. Here is a report from Charles Collingwood, Columbia's correspondent with the Navy, who was with a tank landing craft. He says the first craft onto the beaches were the little LCVP. They came in doggedly, looking very small and gallant with their heads up. Offshore, several miles, loomed the silhouettes of the big ships. Between them and the beaches milled an assemblage of landing craft of all kinds, forming up, waiting to go in. A few thousand yards offshore, two patrol boats stood a mile or so apart. They marked the starting line. They were just out of range of effective machine gun fire. On those boats, each wave of landing craft dressed like a unit of foot soldiers and were then dispatched to the beach. As each wave went in, 
A new group of landing craft advanced to the starting. Their turn came. They too went in. Some of the men moved off to find and fight the enemy, destroy his guns, push him back from the beach. Others stayed at the water's edge to signal in the landing craft. More and more men reached the beach. Kept coming in, landing their men, then backing off the shore and going back for another load. The guns began firing. At one end of the beach had a little knot of German prisoners began to farm. Back among the big ships, the Admiral decided he could now send in his bigger landing vessels, send them into the shore. The LCIs and the LSPs sidled to the starting line and then headed for the beach. The LCVPs are little fellows, carried swung from the side of bigger ships. But the LCIs and the LSPs are ocean-going vessels and move under their own power. An LCI is 155 feet long and carries more than 200 soldiers. When she hits the shore, a ramp is let down from each side and the soldiers pour out onto the beach. An LSP is bigger still. She's a great floating garage. When she reaches shore, her mouth opens and trucks and vehicles of every description roll out of her and are lifted by davits from her hold. When these ships go in, the landing is well underway and their cargoes quickly build up the power of the assault. I return you now to CBS in New York. That was Edward R. Murrow reporting from London. We had news late this afternoon that scores of United States heavy bombers, heavily escorted by fighters, took off from an American base in Russia today and roared over the Russian-German front, showering tons of high explosives and incendiary bombs on an airdrome at Galatz in Romania. It was the first American raid of the war from the new shuttle bases in Russian territory. To keep you posted on last-minute developments in the invasion coverage, American, Canadian, and British troops landing on the French Normandy coast to open the Western Front have fought their way nine and a half miles inland to ancient Caen within a few hours today, and the Germans reported that the gigantic Allied invasion operation is fast developing along a 60-mile front. General Eisenhower, after announcing the invasion in one sentence in his first communique, said in the second one, of which you've heard, that the initial landings have succeeded and that fighting continues. There's been no sign of a German counterattack more than 24 hours after the opening of the grand assault shortly before midnight today. Apparently affecting a complete strategic and tactical surprise by landing on a soft spot between the heavily defended ports of Le Havre and Cherbourg, the Allied forces at remarkably low cost made good their landings in the Great Crusade and have fought their way into the streets of Caen. More invasion news in just a moment from Washington. But now, another switch overseas for a quick glimpse of the war in Italy. General Electric takes you to Rome. Farnsworth Fowl reporting. Five, four, three, two, one, one. It was 22.50, and our last time check... Apparently, the time check is about one minute off. We've just been informed from uh, our communications headquarters. The Farnsworth Fowl, our correspondent there, is, is getting set to go and will be with us in just a moment. Meantime, we'd like to remind you that the CBS network will remain on the air all night to bring you the latest news of the invasion with comprehensive reports from Columbia's correspondents and other newsmen who have been at the front. So keep tuned to your CBS station. We repeat the communique. Allied forces have succeeded in their initial landings and fighting continues. In its second communique on the invasion, SHAEF said that the Allied assault forces have met little opposition in the channel or in the air. And now the switch to Rome, Farnsworth Powell reporting. This is Rome. 
Washington, Bill Henry reporting. President Roosevelt at his news conference this afternoon could be accurately described as cheerful but sleepy. The nearly 200 correspondents who jammed into the study could testify to his cheerfulness, and he described himself as being sleepy. He said the invasion was going right up to schedule, and he made public the first figures that we had lost only two destroyers and one landing craft in the first 12 hours, and that air losses had been only 1%, both well under expectation. Both houses of Congress opened with an attitude of prayerful solemnity and functioned in that atmosphere today. The House, however, continued its demands for prompt investigation of Pearl Harbor, and finally, after a red-hot session, passed a resolution calling for the commencement of the Pearl Harbor court-martials by September 7th of this year. Tonight, at 10 o'clock Eastern wartime, President Roosevelt will go on the air briefly to read a prayer. The text of the prayer has already been made public, and it is the President's wish that everyone join with him as he reads it tonight. I return you to General Electric in New York. On our World Today tonight, we have heard from Edward R. Murrow broadcasting from London, from Farnsworth Fowl broadcasting from Rome, and the report you've just heard from Bill Henry in Washington. This is Douglas Edwards speaking for the General Electric Company, reminding you to tune in tomorrow and every weekday at this same time and to buy another war bond and hold on to those you have. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And now, B.F. Goodrich presents Joseph C. Harsh in The Meaning of the News. This is, of course, the day when the Grand Alliance of the United Nations has finally achieved its full stature. All the hopes and fears, the planning, the disappointment, the heroism, and the plain, dull, monotonous routine of years of war sustained by millions of people with faith have converged on this historic day. This is also the day which Hitler planned would never happen. This is, in fact, a moment of supreme frustration for the man and for the evil forces which would, had they had their way, been long before this the undisputed masters of the world. Their war was skillfully and confidently planned. It was to go in a succession of blows, first east, then west, back and forth, until all opposition had vanished. It went that way at first with horrifying ease. Poland in the east and Denmark and Norway, then France in the west and Belgium and Holland. Back to the east again to the Balkans and Russia. Russia was to fall swiftly. Then Hitler would turn on Britain and wipe it out before America could throw any real weight into the balance of war. What went wrong with Hitler's plan is now a well-known story. The first flaw in the perfect crime came when a handful of brave Englishmen held at Dunkirk 
not very far from where we are landing today, held long enough to save the tiny nucleus of a British army. That little flaw widened into a crack when Britain's youngsters held the skies over England. The crack widened into a chasm when Stalingrad held firm and Rommel was driven back from El Alamein. Those were the foundation stones on which many men have built, painfully, patiently, and well. They bound those stones together into a political grouping of nations, at first a loosely knit combination. The binding has hardened through time and the gradual emergence of confidence and respect among associates in this undertaking. Now, at long last, the finished instrument is ready and has been put to its destined use. The invasion has opened swiftly on the fall of Rome. German armies are today facing not one single front at a time as they had planned so meticulously and shrewdly, but five fronts bearing down on them at once. Their troops met our invading forces on the Norman Peninsula this morning with the knowledge in every man's mind that Rome had fallen only two days before and that a German army in Italy was in full shattered and humiliating retreat. They faced our men on the beaches knowing that it is only a matter of days or perhaps even hours before the Russian glacier starts grinding down on them again. There has been no roof over their fortress for months. Beginning today, there is no longer a safe cellar under it. What our bombs have done from above, the unleashed forces of the underground movement began from below this morning. Hitler intended to pluck down his victims one by one. Today, from above and below and on three sides, a reluctant world is in imposing and fearful motion against him. We can't be sure yet how strong the vaunted German defenses are. One can, certainly be, one can certainly be canceled out. German submarines are neither interfering with the channel crossings nor are even at sea in numbers sufficient to have any serious effect. German coastal patrol boats and underwater obstacles have already been overcome easily. Secret weapons have not yet interfered with the embarkation of the crossings or the landings. The Luftwaffe has yet to show its weight in the battle. German coastal batteries must have been most effectively silenced. The President's announcement that up to this noon only two destroyers and one landing craft have been sunk is astonishing evidence of the effectiveness of last night's air bombardment and this morning's shelling from heavy ships, both of which had this purpose in view. Between midnight last night and breakfast this morning, 10,000 tons of bombs were dropped on those German coastal batteries. Perhaps that helps to explain why this evening General A. Eisenhower is able to report that the initial landings in France have succeeded. Beyond this announcement, we know very little about the actual places or extent of the landing, except that they are along the ancient coast of the Norman Peninsula. But we can know today that the will of the world to remain free has proved its ability to achieve a wartime coalition and to put that coalition into decisive motion. This is the day of all days which Adolf Hitler never wrote into his calculations. Mr. Harsh's analysis of today's historic events was brought to you by B.F. Goodrich. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.